0: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Perspectivity. In today's episode, you're going to get to learn about my friend, Leo, Leonardo from Colombia, a neurologist who tells an incredible story about how he came to America, creating an unbelievable life for himself, and also how he prioritized certain aspects of his life that he would never let go of, including traveling the world and having a deep connection to his family in really unique ways. As you enter this episode, I want you to just think about what it's like to come to America from another country, and also what it's like to have to compare and think about your life in America compared to your previous country. What are the ways that that gives you more appreciation for what you get when you get here or the life that you're having? And then what are the things that you might miss, things that are different from your previous country or where you came from? I loved this episode, it was an absolutely incredible time and I hope that you can experience some of the inspiration that I got to have spending time with Leo. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Perspectivity, today I'm with my new friend Leo. Leo, would you mind just introducing
1: yourself? Sure, so I'm Leo Morantis, originally from Colombia, moved to the States back in 1998 uh, with the dream of becoming a neurosurgeon, halfway through it, decided not to and now I'm a vascular neurologist here in North Carolina. Wow, it's incredible. I'm excited.
0: Today, we're going to walk through your life story. And going through your life story, our goal is just to explore what your life has kind of looked like and see what insights come out as we do that. And so to get us kind of kicked off and get started, I'd like to ask you, what is a moment from your younger childhood, kind of your earliest memories, that brings you joy when you think about it?
1: Wow, so many. Uh, most of them was when my family from the states will come and visit. That to me was when everybody was happy. Everybody was together. Uh, I came from a poor uh, origin, uh, and so when my aunts will come from the U.S., they typically were a little more affluent, and you know we had things like cereal, which we would never have had otherwise. And uh, the house was full with people. My every, all the family will converge in one house and spend time together, and we will go to bed late. And those are probably the happiest memories that I have from my time growing up.
0: Wow. Excuse me. You said cereal. Yeah. You would have
1: cereal, which you didn't normally have. Correct. Yeah, that was a, a luxury. Uh, and so whenever they would come, you know, my cousins were used to eating cereal, and so my aunts would go and buy cereal, and we would have cereal uh, only when they would come. Wow. So, what would you have instead of cereal? Coffee (laughs) is a staple breakfast for a Colombian household, or at least for for me, it was like coffee with bread or some sort of pastry, uh, sometimes eggs. Wow.
0: That's amazing. Thinking of cereal as a luxury here.
1: Plus, plus my mom, uh, you know, Bogota, where I grew up, is a very cold city. And so my mom doesn't consider anything that's not warm breakfast. So breakfast was more like uh, cereal was more like something that you can have at breakfast, but not, that doesn't quite qualify as breakfast. It's got to be warm because it's got to warm you up and give you a good start to the day.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So paint the context for me a little bit. You're growing up in Colombia. You, what's your family look like? Do you have any
1: brothers and sisters? Like, what's the house look like? Yeah. So my parents got divorced when I was nine. Um, and so my my household, for the most part, was my mom, my brother, and sister. My brother is seven years older, my sister uh, nine years older. And so I was the little one at home. Wow. The little one, the baby? Right. Did you get any special treatment being the little one? Well, I kind of got picked on by my siblings because they will get in trouble when anything happened to me because they were supposed to watch me, I guess. And so like if I'd fall or something, they, they'd get crap for it. So they didn't really like that so much. That's
0: amazing. In during your childhood, so you mentioned divorced at nine. What was that like for you? Just that experience.
1: Well, you know, I I don't really have that many memories of living with my dad. I mean, of course, I have a few, but uh, you know, at home things had gotten a little tough towards the end, and so I think that despite the fact that it was sad to see my dad leave, uh, we were happy afterwards. I mean, not we didn't have to worry about what time he's going to come back, is he going to be inebriated, uh, or things like that.
0: I can empathize with that a lot. That was a lot of my childhood growing up. There was a lot of tension for some of those same reasons. So thinking about that childhood, and this is always tough, but I like to invite people to do this. If you had to title the chapter of your life that was your childhood, what would you title it? Why?
1: never really thought about that question. Uh, You know, despite the fact that I did not realize the things that I was lacking, you can't miss what you don't know about. And so despite the fact that there was scarcity, uh, it never really felt that bad. Um, So I think it's ignorance is bliss.
0: Wow, that's really powerful. Because to you, you didn't know that cereal was could be a normal part of your everyday breakfast, right? Right.
1: I think I I got the first time that I tried peanut butter, I was sixteen. What? It's <laughs> not quite a staple in Colombia as it is here. Uh, and back in the day, many years ago, I tried to get peanut butter in Colombia, and it was the equivalent of like nine dollars for a little thing. Uh, so it's it's one of those things.
0: That's fascinating to hear because as a kid in America, peanut butter and jelly, that's, that's right. like the main thing that you you get to eat, you get excited for. That's what I had for, for breakfast this morning. <laughs> that's what you had today. That's beautiful. Now it's like, now you can have whatever you want for breakfast, right? Right. Wow, okay. So walk me through, in your childhood, you start to head towards your teenage years. What was kind of the defining moment? You mentioned your first chapter was Ignorance is Bliss. What do you think was the first kind of moment or experience that kind of awakened you out of that ignorance and kind of drew you into seeing the world a little bit more complexly?
1: Right, well, you know, I Christmas or New Year's, 1993, I heard a song uh, at a mall, I was there with my sister, and it was, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that by me, love. And that song, for some reason, uh, awakened something within me that, that I just only felt that day. And I know that it was one of those two days uh, and I became obsessed with that song. Uh, and that song led me to learn a lot about his music and not only Meatloaf, but Jim Steinman, who also composed Total Eclipse of the Heart and Making Love Out of Nothing at All, which are my two favorite songs. Uh, And so to find out that this same guy composed three songs, sung by different people, who all of them were my favorite, it just kind of started this interest in me. Uh, And so that, I think music literally changed that part of my life, and it became the most important thing at that time for me. Wow. So music created
0: an awakening. You were growing up in Colombia, right? So you were speaking Spanish. Meatloaf, that was
1: not in Spanish, right? No, and I did not understand anything at the beginning.
0: Really? Right. So you were falling in love with this song, and you didn't even really
1: understand it at all? Correct, correct. It took a while to even, you know, this is back before, like, I mean, Internet was available, but it was not something I had. I didn't even have a computer at the time. Uh, So I'd have to go to uh, the library and look up the lyrics, but at that time you even had to pay for the internet at the library. It it was, you know, this is Colombia back in, we're talking about 1994, 95. And and I will download the lyrics, print them, and then start translating the songs uh, and trying to sing, even though I'm not a good singer by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but that's basically how I started learning English. And then uh, many of the themes of Meat Loves music became themes of my life. Uh, so that was a very powerful, um, for me, influence in, you know, say, 13 on until I moved to this country.
0: Wow. How did... That's really powerful because when I think about learning language, you need a motivation. You need a reason. Maybe you fall in love with someone who speaks a different language or... Something happens for you, how did hearing meatloaf and wanting to understand that music
1: influence your relationship with the English language? Well, you know, I became obsessed with I have to understand what this says because I felt it you know and I actually listen to music in about 30 different languages now. I have a huge collection on, on like YouTube and I have music that I enjoy and I can listen to music in Turkish, French, Italian, German, Persian, Persian. Uh, I listen to music that I can feel because I don't have to understand it. I can feel it. But with Meat Loaf's music, I felt it, but then I wanted to understand it. And so I, I went in, into more depth with the songs and many songs, you know, like Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire, you know, that's one of Meat Loaf's songs. That was number five on that CD. And, uh, you know, it's just all these things. But it's, you, I learned a lot about English uh, from the music. But then also i learned about there was one song it says i don't need no gold watch in 50 years maybe let's be golden today uh, and it, they, he says in that song uh, they hand you a paycheck every week and steal a piece of your soul every day uh, and so that's powerful and that's that's the way that i live my life now i don't need a gold watch in 50 years i want to be golden today wow this is really hitting me because
0: i'm thinking about i too connect with music music has been kind of the main thing that influenced my desire to learn about culture and i grew up listening to eminem and a bunch of rappers and i became obsessed with hip-hop culture at like around this like 10 11 years old and it was i wanted to understand hip-hop culture because i felt the music it's interesting that you said it, it wasn't about language for me but it was that i really wanted to understand what What brought about these people who could make me feel this way? That's really something I'd never thought about that before you saying that. That's really powerful. Okay, so you're in your teenage years. Did you ever have a crush during your teenage years?
1: Several. (laughs) (laughs) Several. Wow, yeah, so many. I was just talking to my wife about it uh, and all these little crushes I had. Well, not even little. I mean, I was obsessed with many of them. and I, remember, I stay in touch with a few of them uh, because we became friends with a few of them after the fact, and uh, it's nice. Was there ever a really
0: special one, like one that really sticks out during that time?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, there's one from when I lived in Colombia, probably the most powerful of all of them. But then after that, I had a girlfriend and in a way it was just the most important defining person of my childhood, I guess, and, and adolescence. Wow. It was actually a breakup that led me to move to this country. Real? Tell me more. What? What happened? Right. So so we, we had been dating for a while, but her mom didn't know. Her mom loved me as a friend. but And and then after we had been together for about a year, over a year, I told her, well, I want to tell your mom. I just feel weird. Why can't we tell your mom? And she said, it's just not a good idea. Uh, and I guess we or I made the mistake of saying, well, I'm gonna say, it. I'm gonna tell your mom, and I told her, and then I went from being little Leo to being that guy, or that dude, I guess the equivalent of in Spanish. Uh, what is that in Spanish? Uh, ese tipo. Ese tipo? Right. <laughs> that <laughs> that means dude? It's like that dude, or that guy, or that, it's a despondent way, I guess, of speaking uh, about a man. Uh, but she loved me before, but it just she didn't want me anywhere near her daughter. And so that put a lot of strain in the relationship and we ended up uh, going separate ways i mean we we used to kind of jokingly break up all the time but that time it was for real and you know i was used to being with her all the time and i i felt like what's my life going to be like you know you're 17 your girlfriend of one and a half years splits and now what you know and so in a way uh, I felt, well, my life is never going to be the same. So I don't want to be here, but just without her. So I think it's easier to just go somewhere and just at least fill my mind with something new. And that's what that's what made me move to this country.
0: Wow. Okay, so I can definitely empathize with that. I've been through a pretty bad breakup that tra- changed my life. So you decided to go to America after this breakup. And we've talked before this interview, you weren't out of high school yet, right? I was halfway through my senior year when I moved. Wow! And so walk me through that. Like you're only, you're halfway through, you're almost done. Why not
1: finish and come later? Why'd you come right at that moment? Uh, I I know my willpower was not the greatest. It's still not. And I felt that if I had something to come back to, I would probably will give up. But if I had nothing to come back to, I'd have to suck it up. And so leaving halfway plus that was the moment at which I needed a change you know sometimes you just know that this is the time at which something's got to change and you have the activation energy to make it happen and I did at the time I think if I had waited uh, not only will I ha- not have the, the the need to succeed because I didn't have anything to come back to uh, but I also probably would have you know forgotten about the girl or met somebody else and then just kind of stayed there. But at that time, I just needed to make something happen. I mean, need, something needed to change in my life.
0: Wow. So how'd you do it? How'd you make it to America? You know, you're
1: not out of high school and you come over here. Right. What happened? Well, so I called my uncle. My uncle had lived in uh, the States for several years, 20 plus years. He was a citizen. And I asked him, he, he actually had sent me a business card for a woman who helped with scholarships and exchange programs but for the university Um, and he sent it with my grandmother when she came to the states and then she gave me the card when she went back to Colombia and it just kind of planted a small seed in my head and then when the breakup happened then I called my uncle and I said hey if I were if I tried to come to the states would you be able to help me and he told me well I'm going through a divorce and I'm staying with your aunt's ex-husband but if if he's okay with it, I'm gonna ask him if he's okay with it, then I guess you can come over. And then he called me the next day and he said, I talked to him and he said, yeah, sure. And so I sold whatever music I could sell. Meat Love was not a big seller at that time, but I had some Michael Jackson and Bon Jovi and Aerosmith CDs. So I sold those and I got my passport uh, and I applied for a visa. And luckily I got approved for a, for, for a tourist visa, of course. And I came in as a tourist, but then I, got, I enrolled in school and then I kept extending my stay in the country because I wanted to remain legally here.
0: Wow. That's just fascinating because on this tour, you know, pe- for our listeners, many of you know that I'm traveling all 50 United States and meeting people from all walks of life, Leo included. And some of the people we've met have immigrated here, some from Colombia, actually, some from other countries. And Every immigration story is different. Every single one. But one of the big the core themes that's been the same is everyone had this idea that there was a dream that they could make happen here. Did you believe in the American dream at that time? Did that mean something
1: to you? Well, oh, absolutely. I mean you always hear, you know, all the stories, people moving here. I mean my, my aunts and uncle had moved here twenty plus or almost thirty years prior to my moving here. And, you know, their lives were clearly better than the lives of those who had stayed behind. You know, they were not easy, but they were they were better. You know, I mean, of course, I think that that's a it's a tough assessment to make, but they, they had more things and things seemed easier for them than they were for us, the, the Colombian family, if you will. Wow. Plus, in Colombia, it, it's very hard to I mean, you have to have money to go to school, unless you're really, really smart. And I was not that smart. I'm not that smart. So, and and, and in Colombia, you have to be either nice-looking or well-off. You don't have to, but it helps a lot if you are. And I was neither. So I said, well, you know, I need to, I need to find a place that I can actually maybe do something with my life.
0: Wow, wow, that's really powerful to me because. Uh, you're a wildly successful neurologist who I think you're a pretty good looking guy. So <laughs> I'm listening to that and I'm thinking the pressure that people must have felt at least at that time where you were at in Columbia, that seems like a lot of pressure. Um, that's fascinating to think about. I appreciate you sharing that. Okay, so you get here. You're like, how old are you? 17? 17. 17. Wow, so what ha- when you got here, what was it like? like? What was it like coming over, how'd you come across the, the border? How'd you come and, and where'd you end up stopping?
1: So I flew to Miami from Bogota, Then my cousin picked me up. Uh, at that time he drove a, a 7 Series BMW, which was my ultimate favorite car. It was not a brand new car, but it was, it was a very nice car. So my, my arrival in the US, it was like, whoa, you know, I get to ride in a 7 Series <laughs> And and it's Miami, and it's sunny, and he lives in this beautiful neighborhood. And I'm like, whoa, you know, this is great. And then 6 p.m. rolls up, and the sun is still out. In Colombia, the sun goes down at 5.50. And then 7 p.m., and the sun's still out. And 8 p.m., and I was like, whoa, is the day ever gonna end? And I had no clue that the days could last that long. Until it was not until about 9 p.m., this is July 23rd. It was not until 9 p.m. or so that the sun went down. And I'm like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. Uh, plus the weather was nice. Uh, it was it was quite exciting um, coming to America. Wow! So all of a sudden you have like three or four more hours of
0: day, <laughs> which is pretty wild, especially to a seventeen-year-old. And then, wow! What an entry! And so walk me through there. You you enrolled in
1: school, right? Right. So my uncle had already gone to the school before I even came, and he. Uh, filled out this paperwork and he was my guardian so he became my guardian and so he did the guardianship thing And then my uncle was very hands-on. He he died several years ago. Actually today is the 14th, right? Uh, so he actually died uh, January 14th of 2012 wow. So 11 years ago uh, But he was an amazing person. He actually took me the the day that he picked me up because I arrived on the 23rd And then he drove to Miami a few days later and then brought me to Orlando on the 28th. That's where I lived my first year and a half. And on the 28th, when we arrived to Orlando, first thing he did, he took me to the driver's license, got the paperwork, the the booklet. I went and took my class about drinking while driving and all these things that you had to take a class. Uh, And then the next day I was there getting my permit. Um, And he was hands on. He did not wait a minute to take care of things. He would take care of things just immediately. And August 10th, I started. Uh, as a senior at University High School in Orlando. Wow.
0: What was it like entering a new school in America, you know?
1: Well, you know, schools in Colombia, you wear a uniform, and here, there's no uniform. And all I had, my uncle got me some clothes, but in Colombia, I had jeans and stuff, and and this is Orlando in August, you know, girls are wearing skimpy shorts and all sorts of things that had too many distractions that I did not even <laughs> expect. You know, we were all, I went to an all male Catholic school in Colombia, and we were all wearing uniforms, it was jeans and a blue sweater. Uh, and here, you know, I was always wearing jeans and I just got so hot and then I, I wouldn't talk to people because people spoke different. You know, I understood everything that the teachers will say. Like I had never ever any problem understanding my classes, but my peers, they, they, they just spoke differently. I just couldn't quite get what they were saying. Maybe if they were speaking to one another, I would catch some, but if they would talk to me, I guess I'd freeze or something. Uh, you know, I was not used to speaking English. I was used to listening to it and maybe trying to sing along, but I was not really used to actually carrying a conversation. Wow.
0: So what's that? what did that feel like, that idea of kind of, how would you describe that experience of, Try like kind of being there, but not being able to just communicate with your peers. What was that like for you?
1: It was a little bit frustrating, I guess. You know, I didn't really make many friends that first year. I mean, I I think I stay in touch with about three or four friends from my high school period here in the state. So, I mean, when I think of high school, I don't really think of Columbia uh, as my high school. But there's a few people from from that period of time that that I still keep in touch with.
0: Wow, that's actually. That's actually a common theme in America. That A lot of times people will forget about people from high school and they won't have any friends, which has always shocked me. In Colombia, is it like
1: that or is it different in Colombia? Do you stay friends a long time? Oh, we stay friends forever. I'm actually who makes the... When I go back to Colombia, I am the one who organizes the high school reunions. Even though I didn't graduate from my Colombian high school, but I'm still the one who organizes the reunions when I go back. And you stay friends forever? Well, pretty much. I mean, I still talk to I still, I still, talk to at least 40, 50 people from high school and we, we have a WhatsApp group and we uh, are in constant communication pretty much. Oh my God. With, with, that... I mean, of course, not every single person, but with a, a large, large portion of them. That's incredible. I mean, for people listening to this on the podcast,
0: that's probably shocking. And I invite you, if you're listening to this, to consider, I mean, how many friends do you actively talk to from your high school period. I mean, I have like five to 10 and most people I talk to, they have almost zero. Unless maybe they stayed in that hometown area and they have a couple,
1: but that's shocking to hear. Um, I don't hear that hardly ever. Yeah, the last meeting that I organized, which was probably four years ago, I mean, it was about 33 people, which is not that many, but, but some of the earlier ones had like 70 and many of us live abroad. And so I try, when I travel, I try to see my friends who live abroad
0: okay so you made it through high school you graduated i assume right right
1: coming out of high school what the heck do you do now well so that was a problem you see I, I was on a tourist visa and i kept writing to the uh, immigration services saying oh, i'm still enjoying my time here and i'm getting to see this and then they will extend I, i'm a little i would use very nice language to try to get them to extend my stay. And so they extended my stay three or four times, uh, each time six months. And then finally, I said, well, I, I got to do something. You know, I after I graduated from high school, I got this scholarship, the Florida Bright Future Scholarship, because I got you had to get a, a GPA or whatever. I think I had a 1210 or something anyway. It, but I, I qualified for 75% off, but because I was not a resident or a citizen of the United States, I couldn't use it. So my dream was to go to uh, uf i wanted to be a gator but i couldn't go because of course i couldn't afford it uh and the scholarship that i earned i couldn't use because i was neither a resident nor a citizen wow and so i had to then apply for a student visa but that was tricky because i didn't really have the money to to pay for school uh but you know you find ways that you can finally get some affidavit form and my aunt helped me with that and then i was able to get a student visa uh, so it took a little bit about it took about a year or so. And then finally, J- uh, June 7th of 2000, I started uh, in Georgia at a two-year college. Uh, I started the summer semester, and that was when I started my academic career. Wow. That's incredible to hear. It's like you're, you're finding your way, you get here.
0: You have this scholarship that's sitting there, and you're like, I could ha- I can't have it, but you have this opportunity, which also speaks to how did you do so well in school with your English? I mean, you mentioned you could hear... How did you learn English? I learned it with music. So this meatloaf, the time you spent listening to meat, <laughs> Meatloaf,
1: would you, you really say you learned the language primarily through music? Yeah, of course. You know, everybody learns. Everybody, at school, we have English class. But so did every single one of my classmates, and they really cannot speak any English. You know, so whatever we got at school was really not enough. I mean, you can get a PhD in the verb to be, but that's all you can at the end of 11 years of education you can say i am you are he is she is but that's it uh you know you don't really get uh, you advance in your english knowledge in high school so I, I really used music as a way to learn the language and it was not only meatloaf i mean meatloaf was by far the main one but it was also queen earth supply chicago uh balance because it was easy to understand Wow, so
0: that excites me as a, as a psychologist. One of the things I've studied a lot is motivation. It's actually what got me into psychology. How do people become motivated to do things with their life? And what I love hearing here is that music, your desire to like understand and connect with the things that made you feel a certain way, really motivated you to learn language, and it worked. I mean, obviously, you did very well in school when you got here. And then you go into college, Before we dive into the college years, I guess I'd just like to ask you. When you first entered America, what if I asked you this question, what does it mean to be American? What do you think you might have said or thought?
1: Well, you know, before I moved to this country, I figured that when I got here, everybody was going to be tall, blonde, blue eyed or some shade of white. But, but this was by far a much more diverse country than I ever expected. You see, in Colombia, all my friends were from Colombia. I mean, I had one friend who was from the coast of Colombia, and he was the exotic guy at school. We, the rest of us were pretty much from Bogota. You know, so to, to go to a, a classroom in which people are from all sorts of places, different, not only different states, but I mean, my best friend was from Kuwait. Uh, my second best friend was from Albania, and I still, I actually just saw him a couple months ago, and he lives in D.C. now. Uh, and, you know, so I'm in mean, uh, Kuwait, Albania. There were some guys from Puerto Rico, lots of people from South America. Uh, there was a girl who was half Thai, half Dutch. Uh, another one from was from Thailand. I mean, it was so exciting to see that this was a microcosmos of the world, and that's something that I really started loving about my experience here is that I was used to such a, a tiny little spectrum uh, of the whole gamut of colors we have, and coming to America I was just like whoa! I mean, now I have a little passport into all of these places by talking to my friends and seeing what they eat and uh, listening to their language, even though I don't understand anything. But it was just—it really opened my mind uh, to the fact that we have this huge world and that we only get to see a little bit, a little bit of it powerful.
0: And and for people listening, you might have the thought arise like, well, that can happen in other places. Some cities, cultural centers around the world, you might be able to see that as well. And I just want to invite you, if that's something that you're thinking, because it comes up a lot in these kinds of conversations, is just to notice that America just was an example, at least in your life, of a place where you could find that. And that hits me really deep, because when I think about what it means to be American... I think about it being a country where anybody can come and build a life from anywhere else in the world. I see it as that melting pot idea. Um, and certainly there's areas of America that aren't like that, but it's, inter- it's cool to hear that for you, it actually was a gateway into that. I appreciate that. Okay, so I wanted to touch on something that we talked about before this interview. When, you, when you're born in America, we talked about this, and it shocked me. I, I I didn't know this. When you, if you came over here from Colombia and had a child, and that child was born in America, that child is American. Correct. How, now, what if that happened in Colombia?
1: There wouldn't be Colombian.
0: There wouldn't be Colombian. So, if I went and had a child in Colombia right now, they would not be Colombian, right? Correct. You and would they would not get citizenship in Colombia. Correct. So,
1: you don't get citizen by birth that's birthright or citizen by birth doesn't exist in Colombia. Now, of course, I was born in Colombia and I'm a Colombian citizen, but my parents are Colombian and for many generations we've been Colombian. But, but you can't just have a child in Colombian soil and your child be Colombian. That doesn't happen. And it's not the only country. Many countries, at least in Colombia, you can, there's such a thing as naturalization. You can become a citizen of Colombia. Uh, not, not necessarily by being born there, but you can go through the process of naturalization. But there are many countries in the world in which there's no naturalization. There's no way that somebody can become a citizen of that country. Wow, that's
0: fascinating. And I wanted to just bring that up because when you told me that, it was one of the first things we talked about when I arrived a couple of days ago. And I was just shocked. I just had never thought about it. It just seemed like that must be the way it works and I appreciate you highlighting that. Okay, so thinking about that, what was your favorite music when you were getting ready to start college? Before we jump into the college years, what was your favorite music or band or artist? What were you into? Well,
1: to be honest with you, I think that I still listen to the same stuff. I, to this day, I still listen to the same stuff largely. I, I don't really stay updated with music. My brother who's older than me knows more about local, I mean like current music than, than I do. Uh, I, I love the 80s. I, I'm stuck in the 80s. That's what I love. That's what I listen to for the most part. But I think once I was in college, I remember not necessarily going into college, but while I was at college in Atlanta, I remember like Nickelback was a big one. Uh, they actually had free concerts in Atlanta in the summer. Uh, and that's how people came. I mean, I remember Nickelback, Alanis Morissette came. Uh, there was this Josh Joplin was, I think, a local band. But those were kind of like the things that I remember from, from that time. But I think Nickelback was probably Matchbox 20. This is all like, yeah. like college years. Wow, it's fascinating. So when
0: you started college, what'd you want to do? What'd you major in? What'd you think a career would be? Well, so
1: I, I knew I wanted to be, and so, and I think I told you about this, when I moved to this country, my, I, my friend from Kuwait actually helped me create an email, and it was Brain Surgery 33, because I counted the years, and by 33, I would finish all the educational steps to become a neurosurgeon, and that was my goal. In uh, 33, also, I was a Christian at the time, I was a Catholic, and Jesus fulfilled his mission at 33, and at that time, I figured, well, I'll do mine too by 33 and so that was brain surgery 33 and so i wanted to be a neurosurgeon and so when i started college i was basically in the chemistry biology pre-med kind of mix Uh, but i started a two-year college because that's really all i could afford wow
0: so you could go into this two-year college and start building towards that and in addition to like studying trying to become a neurosurgeon what else were what were your goals in addition to that was it singularly that's it were there more distracting well, crushes no. along the way? Well,
1: so, so the, the funny thing is that, so I started college, of course, but I didn't know anybody. I, I had lived in Orlando pretty much up until the time that I started college. But then my uncle moved to Atlanta. My mom and sister actually moved to Atlanta too. My brother moved, so everybody moved after I did. You know, Within a year and a half, my brother, sister, and mom had also moved to the States. Uh, And so my uncle, with whom I had initially moved, moved to Atlanta. My aunt, who had lived for 20 plus years in Texas, moved to Atlanta. And so Atlanta became home. And so that when I think of my hometown in the States, I think of Atlanta. That's where my sister lives. That's where I spend Christmas and New Year's. My cousins live there. And so to me, home is Atlanta. Uh, and so we came to Atlanta, but I didn't know anybody in Atlanta. I mean, of course, my family. And that that was very that w- those were happy times because now I was reunited with my mom, my brother, my sister, my aunt, my cousins, my uncle. Uh, my aunt bought a house with a pool, and we would go every weekend to the pool and have a good time, and it, it was great. Um, and so, but I didn't really have any friends, and I was in, in college, and I started in the summer. Uh, and... Initially, I didn't have much else going on for me other than working because I had a a student visa. I was allowed to work 20 hours during school session, and on vacation I could work 40 hours. So I worked at the registrar's office uh, at college, and that's how I would pay my minimum payments on a credit card with which I would pay my tuition. So I would pay my tuition with the credit card, and then I would work my 20 hours a week to make the minimum payments uh, to be able to keep going to school. That's really powerful. Um,
0: Again, for people listening, a lot of people don't know this, but if you have a student visa, you're limited in how much you can work in school, like you mentioned. So I've met plenty of people who they can't pick up an extra job, even if they want to, as a student, to support their life or support their lifestyle. And if you're a citizen, you can. You can work as much more as you want. And I always thought that was interesting because I had friends who were like, I want to work more, but I can't work more. Not allowed to. Um, and I'm sure there's some reasons for that, but that was something that always shocked me. That you can't just go do that. Wow. Okay. So you're doing that. You have a family, like you led the way. Your whole family came to Atlanta, which I love Atlanta, by the way. That's one of my favorite cities in the US. I'm going to be there in a couple months. It's one of my absolute favorite cities. It's a cultural hub, right? Mm-hmm. I mean it's just deep-rooted culture, it's got so much character. I love
1: Atlanta. You get into that, you did two years. What's your next? Well, so I actually did almost three years, because this was a very inexpensive place to stay, going to school. Uh, Not only that, but I became involved in student government. Uh, And so I I initially started as a, I forgot, maybe a committee member, then I became a senator, then I became treasurer, and then I became president. Of student government, and that actually opened my shell because I was very much an introvert, uh, and also, also because I was in a different country and everything was new, and English was the language, and I just didn't feel quite confident. And it was not until my student government time that I started breaking through that shell, and and then I, you know, once I became president, I was able to you know talk to anybody, talk to large groups of people, and not really sweat it or think about it twice or anything. So, uh, student government really helped me. Uh, develop my personality and develop, you know, a lot of different skills that I was lacking. Uh, and so that was, and, and so I stayed there, and by being in student government, also, I decreased my tuition. Um, and then because of my grades, I was able to apply for a fee waiver, so I will waive the out-of-state portion of tuition. So basically, I was going to school for free, and so at the beginning, I was paying, but then after that, I was almost able to go to school for very little money. Uh, and so that was a good place for me to stay. But at the same time, they couldn't award me a bachelor's degree no matter how long I stayed there. So I had to at some point make the jump. Wow, that's incredible to
0: think. And I resonate with that because I too, I did a lot of student, student groups, including student government. I was a liaison to the student government in the main campus I went to at Ohio State. And I, I did the same thing, build up scholarships, found ways to weigh fees. And to me, I was always like, this is an incredible thing. It's like the more I invest in my community, the more I'm rewarded, and I get an amazing education while this amazing opportunity to serve, and I could do it at a low cost and get a quality education. Is that what your
1: experience was?
0: I mean, yeah, it all absolutely. different.
1: Absolutely, it was great. And they actually, when I became uh, president, they actually sponsored me to go on a uh, leadership conference. It was an international youth leadership conference in, in the Czech Republic. Uh, and, I mean, I had to pay part of it, but they helped me make it possible. And, and then I traveled. That was my first trip outside of, you know, the States. Uh, and it was amazing. And I met people from, again, all over the place. And it was just, again, this, this whole diversity that I enjoy so much. Uh, people from Turkey, from different Middle Eastern countries, from several European countries, from South America. And it was just great. Uh, and it opened my mind even more about the things that that you can do wow
0: was there anything you have so much gratitude and i really appreciate i can see it in your eyes when you talk about this you have so much gratitude for all the opportunities that you had i want to ask because we all have things we like and don't like about our country or our world or setting about anything was there anything that you really didn't like in america that you had liked more in Colombia? i mean i'm not comparing them as better or worse but things you're like "Ah, i don't understand why this is this way
1: Yeah, so here you you endure a lot of loneliness. I do, and and I do even though I'm an active person. Uh, I mean, I'm an active person, I have a job, I have friends, I'm active in society, I feel. Uh, But for instance, for my mother to be in this country, it it was so alienating. Uh, She felt uh, left alone most of the time. you know, She moved back to Colombia several years ago, and I tried to bring her back last year, and she was here for like three weeks. and said, I can't stand it. I'm going to go nuts. And I said, okay, mom, go back. Uh, there's loneliness. Everybody here is doing their own thing. And, and I mean, it's a good thing, we're, but, but we're a very individualistic society, I think, here in the States. You know, people, uh, everybody is worried about advancing their career and working on their own stuff, which is great. Uh, it's a very productive way. In Colombia, I don't have to call my friends to tell them I'm coming. I just ring the doorbell, and they stop whatever they're doing, and we have a good time. And whatever they were doing, they'll continue to do at some point, later today, tomorrow, or whenever. Uh, so here, to, make an, to, to see my best friend, I almost have to make an appointment. I have to plan well in advance, and this is like there's never time. And you see, in Colombia, it doesn't work like that.
0: Wow. That's incredible. That reminds me of being a kid. You just like kind of walk up to your friends' houses, hey, so-and-so here, can they play? And it's like, yeah, of course, here we go, when you use play, yeah, and now nice. it's like, yeah, uh, open up your, here, here's a link to my Calendly app, and you can schedule, you know, make sure you use the link that says fun time, and <laughs> click that one, right. and pull, pick. And that, I mean, that's largely, that's my experience now. It's, that's fascinating. I appreciate that perspective. So you did like, oh, about three years in Atlanta, and then where'd you go from there to, to finish your degree? And what'd you study there? Was it all just kind of pre-med? So I think, my, I
1: think my associate's degree is in, I think it's pre, either pre-med or chemistry, one of the two. It, 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 the programs were so similar that it didn't really make a big difference. Then I went to UAB, and I was, I was University originally- University of
0: Alabama, right? At Birmingham, right. Birmingham, that's
1: right. And so I was initially a chemistry major, but I got into a little argument with the chair of-, of Chemistry, And so I figured, well, you know, maybe I'll just switch to biology. So I ended up as a biologist from UAB. Wow.
0: I'm going to feel free to reject this, but I'm really curious. What kind of argument?
1: Well, so he was the chair of the department and he was writing something on the board. And then he del- deleted it. And then he was like, okay, and then write something else on the board. And he deleted it again. And I was just like a little upset. I mean, he teaches one class per semester. It was a biochemistry too. It's only for chemistry majors, only for, it's a very advanced class. And he just had to keep referring to his notes. And then he will delete. And then in a, in its very, I just asked my friend to let me look at the book because I didn't take my book that day. And I, my next, I just said, can I look at your book? And that's it, I mean, it was so silent, but I think he was trying to get the attention away from him. And he said, it would be so much easier if I were the only one talking here. And I said, it will be so much easier if you know what you're doing. Oh. <laughs> and of course, you can hear the silence. You can hear a pin drop in the back of the room, you know, because apparently you don't talk like that you. I guess a case of insubordination. But, but the thing is, I was not doing anything wrong. I mean, I really, it's not like I was talking or anything, you know, and I think that, I just didn't appreciate the fact that the chair has so little respect for his class, his teaching, the only one class per semester he teaches, That to not even be prepared for that. And then to, to pick on me just because I want to look at the textbook, you know, it's just like, okay. That's,
0: yeah, that's funny. It's, everybody has either been that person or seen that person who challenges the teacher. And in America, that's, that's common to have someone in a class do that. I don't know if in Colombia people challenge teachers in college, but yeah. it's pretty common here. You'll see it occasionally,
1: not yeah. a lot, well, but every once in a while. I, I think. I mean, not that I'm always challenging, but in Colombia, yeah. I, I, the one time that I would have been the first kid in my class, I was never the first in my class. I was typically in the top five, but I was never the first. The very, the only one time in which that would have happened, there was an error in my bullet in my uh, grade report card. And instead of a 97 for Spanish, it was 87. And that caused me to be the second spot instead of the first spot. So when I went to the teacher and I asked him to correct it so that I could have this to take to my mom for the very, for one time I had the first spot, he said, do you study to learn or do you study for the grade? I said, do you teach because they pay you or to teach? (laughs) And it was a similar argument. (laughs) That's a great argument.
0: I love that. Because you're in that grade too. That's wow. Okay. So thanks for, thanks for indulging that. I think people think that's pretty funny because it ha- it's a normal thing that happens. But that's pretty powerful, too, though, that that one moment. And that's something I like to highlight as a psychologist a lot, is that that one moment in your story motivated a different move. Right. So you mentioned you went kind of over towards Biology. And so was that your major how'd you how'd
1: you end up finishing out uab yeah so at that point yeah that biology but at that point i was basically i had taken so many classes that could serve for both majors but i felt that if for some reason i did not go to medical school chemistry was something that i could do more with than biology would have been uh, I, I felt that way and that's why i wanted to go with chemistry because you never know what happens you know your life can change uh, at the drop of a hat you know mm-hmm. and uh, i think Education is something that you should never build it on, no matter what type of education it is, no matter if it's no degree, no matter if it's just some classes, or if it's an associate's degree, or it's a bachelor's. I think every, more, everything that you get as far as an education, you should embrace and you should appreciate because you never know when you become disabled or something happens, life changes, and at least what you have, nobody can take away from you. And so I said, well, you know, what if I don't go to medical school for whatever reason? I don't make it into medical school. Well, I think chemistry I can do something with. And I had all, already also thought about, I, I had, I liked pharmaceutical chemistry. And so one of the things that I thought about much, much earlier on in my life was to go to Germany and get a PhD in pharmaceutical chemistry and go into drug design, the good drugs, though. i Colombian, so I have to explain. <laughs> I guess there is, a, I guess you sometimes do. Wow, so you,
0: you do the bio, you end up, do you, was your degree in chemistry? Biology, and so biology. My, yeah, my major is biology. So you do biology. Anything else at that time? Any other significant moments? Well, I got married. You got married? Yeah. Well, so oh. I.
1: the funny thing is that I went to Birmingham to try to you know, live away from home and to have the college life and all that. And I, I moved to Birmingham on the 17th of August of 2003, which was a Sunday. Uh, and on the 23rd of August, which was the next Saturday, I met my ex-wife. Um, And I saw her that morning. She was an international student mentor. And I thought when I met her, she looked like a girl I had met in the Czech Republic from Ukraine. And I asked her, are you Ukrainian? And she said, no. But but then we started chatting. And that night I was at a a fraternity party. You know, they're trying to recruit people. And so I went to this fraternity party and she was in a sorority. So she was there and was the only person I knew in the whole party. So we talked all night. And after that, we started hanging out and we got together, and we ended up getting married, I mean, several months later. Wow. She understood that for me to, you know, I was paying about $10,000 per semester back then to go to school, Uh, but once I became a resident, it was basically free because I had good grades, enough good grades to be able to not have to pay for school, but because I was an international student, I had to pay out-of-state tuition no matter how long I was there. So So the
0: residency, was that part of the motivation for
1: the marriage? Well, it was, it was the reason it hastened it. We probably, you know, we had a good relationship and we felt that we would at some point get married. But, you know, if we do it now, it's going to help us, you know, financially. And so we got married um, at the end of my junior year uh, in May. And then that next fall semester, I didn't have to go to school anymore. Uh, so I quit school for a year. And then I paid, because at the time I owed $25,000. And so I quit school and worked for a year in an insurance company, but then I didn't have to pay for school, which was one thing. And then I was paying, I repaid 18000 out of the 25000 that I owed. And then when I went back to school the following fall, so after skipping two, two semesters, fall and spring, uh, then I only owed $7,000, and I was basically paying barely for the fees, no tuition, because I had enough good grades to go to school for free at that point. And so it saved us a lot of money uh, doing that. That's incredible. I wanna highlight that. Almost nobody
0: does thinks like that. I mean, if you talk to any student, they're like, I gotta get through school. And most people are afraid to leave school because they're afraid if they leave, they won't go back.
1: Did you ever worry that taking a year off, you Mm, might not? Never. I mean, it didn't cross my mind that I would just sit it out forever. You know, I had a goal. Wow, that's powerful. I mean, to me, that's, I
0: resonate with that because, you know, I'm one year away. I'm a dissertation away from my PhD, and I'm not avoiding it. I'm excited to write my dissertation. But this trip, it was the right time to do the trip, and so I decided let's do it. And people have asked me, well, are you worried you won't finish your PhD or you'll, you'll stop and, and quit? And I'm like, that doesn't even occur to me. Of course I'll finish my PhD. But I see a lot of students worry about that, even students going from undergrad to grad school. Feel like they gotta go right now. They're very worried they'll lose their momentum. That's really, well, it speaks to the clarity of your goal. You were sure. And you had till 33, right?
1: Right.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> well, I guess technically that would have put me at 34. No. Uh, so maybe that's why I chose Neurology. That works for, for a story. That's
0: <laughs> it. I had. I only had till 33. That's incredible. So you go back, you finish this degree. Well, what was it like graduating? Did you go to your graduation? Yeah, of
1: course. What was yeah. that like? Did your family come and stuff? Yeah, they, they were all very excited. It was, it was good. But I mean, even my high school graduation was exciting. They, they brought my brother to it. Uh, my brother and my sister came to my high school graduation, so that was special. I was not expecting that my brother would come. I knew that my mom would come. I knew that my sister would come, but I did not expect my brother... And they told me they, they rented a van, and they told me, oh, help us with the bags in the van. And then I go to the van, and then there's my brother. So that was that was quite good. That's, that was a great surprise for me.
0: What was so significant about your brother? Why did that matter? much? my best friend. Really? That's powerful. Now, how much older is your brother? Seven. Seven years older. Seven years older.
1: And you thought, so he was a surprise. Did he know that it was going to be so impactful? Oh. Well, he, he knew that it was going to be a surprise because he knew that I didn't know, know that he was coming. My sister used to work for an airline, so I knew that she could come easily because she had uh, the means, tickets, I mean, and my mom. Uh, but I didn't know my brother was going to come, but wow. he did. Wow. But they've been together. They've been at every graduation and the white coat ceremony, everything along the way, they've always been part of it. Wow. That's incredible. So if you had the title like your college life,
0: go back to that idea. If you had to title that chapter of your life, because there's a lot, that undergrad life, before you go to grad school, what would you title that?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. I don't know. I really really can't come up with any cool name for
0: it. Mm Mm-hmm. I always ask that question. It seems like it, why have you, why does he ask that question all the time? Because it's so difficult. But I ask that question because it gets you to think a lot about well, what were the most significant moments of that time? What kind of rises to the top? So if it if it comes back to you, just okay. like I know the title to yeah, that yeah. to that time. Okay, well let's walk me through. So so med school. I mean, did they have at that time? did you take the
1: MCAT? Correct. Or what was that like? Well. I have to admit, I'm not very good with all these tests. I, you know, that's something I learned in life that I wish I had known much earlier. The one thing, when you're poor, you try to do the things in the poor way. And, and it's a poor person's mentality. But the thing is, you can't help it because that's all you know. Had I known then what I know now, I would have done things completely different. To give you an example. I decided I'll study myself for the MCAT. I'll buy some textbooks for preparation. But the thing is, I have an attention problem. And I have a hard time reading. I have a hard time staying on task. It's extremely hard for me. It's just, it's impossible. I can I can be in class and pay attention. I can I can typically do that. I always sit in the first seat and I try to, as much as I can, pay attention. But I have a hard time to do something by myself that that requires a lot of discipline. So I said, instead of paying $3,000 or however much for this course, I'm going to do it myself. And I did. And I got a score that was enough to get me into medical school. But if I had taken a class, a good class, maybe I would have paid $3,000. But I would have had a full right to go to medical school.
0: I love that point, And that's something I had. The same thing happen to me. Everybody told me, for for me I had to take the graduate record exam i think that's it gre mm-hmm. and i thought you know you want to get a decent score to get into the school you need i had no idea that they decide who gets the best fellowships largely based on those scores so even schools now that don't require those tests to get in those tests can be a huge difference maker in who gets the money and the fellowships and the time to devote to their studies. I really appreciate that insight. If you're listening to this, I really think you should take that into your perspective that you should look ahead to people who've done this before and ask that question. Cause I would go back and I would study 10 times more for that GRE and I'd take it one more time. Cause I would have got a lot more, a lot more resources to do even more good with what I was
1: trying to do. I love that advice. Right. So I think that you invest in yourself and and that's why I think people who have a little more keep having a little more because they 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 are mentored by people who have experience in getting things done you
0: know I appreciate that and, and it's not as simple as it seems a lot that's a lesson I've learned too yes and this is very important there are certain times where things just aren't fair but also I've seen so many students who step into class and I appreciate your point about respecting education. They step into class, they make little to no effort to form a relationship with their professor. They are only there for the grade. They study for the grade. And they're not thinking about how do they actually own and take ownership of that education and use it right now in their life. And that was always the differentiator between me and other students is I went in and I said, every class I take, I'm going to treat this as if this is my major. If it's intro to jazz, I'm a jazz major. I'm going to learn everything I can. If it's geography, I'm a geography major. And I didn't, there was no difference between my psychology courses and my electives or any other class I ever took. It was always, I'm this major right now in this moment changed everything for me. I love that. Okay. So you take the MCAT, you
1: get a good enough score. And then where'd you go for med school? So South Alabama, I was put on the wait list. Of course, being in Alabama, uh, the natural choice was UAB. I mean, that's where I was going for undergrad, and it's a great school, great program. But they put me on the wait list. I guess I didn't really interview very well, uh, or maybe the sum total of my profile was not great. Uh, South Alabama, they, they gave me an admission on the spot pretty much. I mean, it was very shortly after the interview, and they offered me a summer research program. So I said, instead of waiting around to see if UAB will take me at some point or not, I'm just going to say, let's go to Alabama. I mean, to South Alabama. And it's Mobile, so living close to the beach, which was nice. Uh, I missed being close to the beach, being in Orlando initially. So I said, yeah, let's go to Mobile. And so I moved there for the summer. I was in the summer research program. actually got an award for that summer research program. And then I started medical school there.
0: Wow. Okay. So was there ever a moment where... If you're in medical school, I mean you were clear that this was what your goal was But was there ever a moment where you just were like, holy crap, how did I how did I get here?
1: How did you have any moments like that? Well, my first test in medical school, you know, I'm, I'm used to Without trying to be arrogant or anything, but I, I was always a good student I was always top of my class not never as I said the top but I was among the top five ten in my class typically above average grades or always. Then first test in medical school, it was a developmental anatomy test. I scored 88. The class average was 92. I was extremely upset. I I felt like medicine is not for me or what's what's going on. But you have to realize that in medical school, you put everybody who was at the top of their class, gets put on this class, and then of course somebody now has to be at the bottom. You know, somebody who's always been at the top now has to be at the bottom because there's got to be a bottom. You know, not everybody can be at the top, not everybody gets the same grade. And so that was a very humbling moment for me. And I, I've always been very competitive. And I said, well, there's gotta be something that I can do better than these kids. I mean, they're clearly better than me at school. I can do something better than them. And I made a purpose to just be the happiest during those four years of medical school. So I was happy.
0: Wow. So your your goal is and that's fascinating. Like you're eighty-eight to ninety-two. And I want to stress something to people who aren't highly competitive in academics, which is totally okay. That might sound like you are still doing fine and 88 is like a B plus, like that sounds fine. But when you're used to academic competition, it's not fine. It doesn't feel fine. It's actually very painful, right? It's scary. It's like, am I going to lose my position? Can I actually be a neurosurgeon? Like, I, and I can resonate with that. Undergrad, I almost got an A minus, but it was an error on the record, just like you had had. And I went to the teacher, and the teacher corrected it. But I remember for a day before I went to that instructor, being paralyzed, thinking my life was over, and I was going to have an A minus. I actually thought my whole life was going to crumble, that I was going to like become a failure in life and be scared and alone, (laughs) like you mentioned, and. That was paralyzing to me. And people have a domain in their life where that matters a lot. And that can happen for us academics. But you mentioned you were going to become the happiness. And that's funny. I always said I would be fit. Because as I got farther in the academic world, so many people weren't fit. They didn't take care of themselves fitness-wise. So I was like, I'm going to be really fit, too. I'm going to have a strong fitness identity. And it did work. It, it, made, it took the edge off what the heck how do you determine you're gonna be the happiest how well, do you think
1: it? i think the way that i phrased it back then i'm gonna be the one who has the most fun uh that that was really wow. the way that i phrased it back then and and so i i figured i'm gonna be traveling and i'm going to be you know just travel and so you know mobile we had a cruise ship going out of mobile we had one out of new orleans and if I had seven days off, that was my threshold, seven days. If I'm off for seven days, so that included every spring break because there's seven days, uh, Christmas break. I mean, anytime that I was off for seven days, I left the country every single time in the four years of medical school. Uh, every time? Every single time. <laughs> every it, single that time? Seven, if I was off for seven days, I left the country. It didn't matter where I went. It didn't matter if it was to Canada, to Mexico, on a cruise to Colombia, across the pond to Europe. But every time that I was off for seven days or more, I left the country during medical school. That included if I had a test right after I came back, which I did several times. How'd you do in school doing that? I I did all right. And I I finished top half of my class, but- Better than where you started. Better better than where I started, (laughs) that's right. Wow, how'd that affect, so, how did that affect your marriage during this time? Well, unfortunately, my ex, my wife back then, she did not really like flying. She did not really like traveling that much. So we took, our anniversary trip was supposed to go to Mexico, uh, Cancun, but Hurricane Wilma came and destroyed Cancun. So we ended up going to Niagara Falls, flew through Cincinnati, uh, and then to Niagara. And she just didn't really like flying. Uh, we went to Colombia one time, but yeah, she, she did not really like traveling. The cruises, that's that where we'll go together. But she hated flying she did on a couple of occasions including like when we went to Canada. um but yeah she didn't really like traveling that much but i loved it and when i started doing it i couldn't stop doing it
0: wow that's incredible it's interesting too that you mentioned that you're gonna have the most fun and a part of that was actually exploring the world and widening your worldview to people listening to perspectivity travel is a great way to improve your perspective. It puts you in a new context where you have to learn. You're forced to, to grow your mind when you travel. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I love that. So you did all this. You walk through medical school, and how long is medical school? 40 years. Four years. What was your lowest point in medical school?
1: I can tell you the lowest point in residency. Uh had lots of lowest points. Uh, And medical school was really not that bad. It's Just sometimes after studying a lot for a test, you would still get like a 70 something, you know? And I mean, there were some tests that they had to curb it because I mean, everybody basically got substandard grades. And so there would be a curb. Uh, And so sometimes after studying so, so much and you get a grade. I think I remember one time I got a 71 or something on, I think it was a biochemistry test, I don't remember. But that was a very low grade. I mean, it ended up working at like an 80, after the curve but but still, you know, you work so hard and you feel like you should know more than this. And and that was a little bit tough. But again, not anything that was, I need to quit this or this is not, you know, it's just, everybody was doing poorly. in in a way, but for the amount of time that you spend studying and for how much you love what you're doing, you know, to get such a low grade just feels like. Did you love what you were doing in medical school? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not every class, let's say, for instance, developmental anatomy, is kind of hard to relate to it, even though it makes sense and it's important, Uh, but things like anatomy, I mean, it's fascinating. Physiology, pharmacology, I mean, all those things are really interesting.
0: That's incredible. I felt the same. I felt the same way through all my grad school. I always loved what I've been doing and studying, and it's made all the difference. Did you continue any of your
1: service, like you had done an undergrad in undergrad with student government? So I did my my first two years of medical school. I, I was in student government at South Alabama. Yeah,
0: you should have negotiated an ambassador position with all your traveling. You could have been an ambassador from that student
1: government to a bunch of other ones, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it's funny because at at UAB they have. The ambassadors, they actually have something called the ambassadors and I applied for it, but then that's when I quit school for that one year. So I got selected, but then I ended up quitting school uh, to take that year off to work. And so I had to relinquish my position, um, but I, I had become an ambassador officially.
0: That's incredible. I can see you doing that. Wow, so you go through medical school. Now it's time for residency. Okay, now brain surgery, right? Brain surgeon, what, you're getting ready for residency,
1: what's it look like now? Is it still brain surgeon or what are you thinking? No, so that's that's one thing in medical school. I think when you ask me now, you know, the, I guess the, the, the toughest point of medical school was realizing that my life goal was not what I expected it would be. Uh, so that was actually, well, not only that, but I worked, while I was in undergrad, I worked for a neurosurgeon uh, doing research Uh, extremely smart, one of the brightest people I've I've met and probably I'll know for the rest of my life, extremely smart, Uh, Dr. Cobbs. He worked so hard. When I came to the lab in the morning, he was already there. When I left from the lab in the evening, he was still there and he was doing research and he was doing in, uh, you know, working clinical neurosurgery. And he had, I think, four kids at the time. And I felt, when does he ever get to see his kids? you know? It's just like, he has this beautiful family, uh, but he's always here. He's always at work. And I just, uh, that hit me a little bit the wrong way. And that was early, that was my junior year. Uh, And then of of college. And then when I was in medical school, when I went to my surgery rotation, you had to get there at like 4.30 or five in the morning. It was so early, which I don't mind waking up early. I don't mind waking up early if I can get you know, like if I work 5 a.m. to 2 p.m., I'm good. At 2 p.m., I'm a free man, and I can do my things, I can take care of things and all that. But if I have to be there at 5 a.m. and I have no clue what time I'm going to get out, day after day, that doesn't go well with me. You know, as much as I love what I'm doing, it can't be all that I do. You know, for me, I have so many interests. I And I can't, I don't have, I mean, I, I admire somebody who has such dedication to give up their life for the sake of what they do or what they love. But I love so many things that I cannot give up my life for one of the things that I love. I have to do all of the things that I love. Uh, And so when I saw how hard surgeons work and, you know, when you're there in surgery, they, they nick a vessel and now all of a sudden you have this squirting artery and then they have to fix it. There's no, okay, I need to go to the bathroom. I need a coffee. No, you fix it. You broke it, you fixed it. (laughs) And to have somebody's life so conclusively in my hands, so objectively in my hands was something that I couldn't do. Wow. And so at that point, realizing, okay, I'm not gonna go into surgery, uh, that was tough. Probably, to be honest with you, I don't think that I had the grades to go into neurosurgery anyway. I think that it would have been an uphill battle if I had wanted to, Mm. but the lifestyle was nothing that I will ever want for me anyway. Wow. And so you switched it? I switched it. So I still liked neurology. I mean, the brain is still the most fascinating organ. Uh, And so it was a clear decision that if it's not surgery, because the surgical part is what I don't like, then, well, the medicine part of the brain is what I like. And so I ended up doing neurology. Wow. And so where'd you go for residency? So, you know, there's this match, matching process, so you interview in different programs and you rank them in the order in which you like them with the top choice and the bottom choice and then they do the same thing with candidates and so the match took me to UNC Chapel Hill.
0: Wow. Now, before this interview, we had talked about something that kind of steered your development to residency. You mind just
1: telling us a little bit about that experience? Right, so as a 30-year medical student in Mobile, Alabama, one of my classmates asked me, Leo, where are you going to work? Because a white patient is going to want to have a white doctor. There's just not enough people here who look like you. And I felt, well, you know, if this is a, you know, an educated student who's 30-year medical school, and he thinks this. You know, what can I expect of, you know, the overall general less educated population? And I felt that it was probably a good thing for me to get out of Alabama.
0: Wow. And so that ended up changing where you had positioned
1: yourself, right? Right, yeah. So, Alabama, I mean, it's still, I, it, will, it will not be the worst thing that could happen to me to stay there. Or, I mean, it's not like I would have preferred to not do neurology than to stay at that neurology program. But then that became towards the bottom of my list. Wow.
0: And I like, I want to highlight that point just because. This isn't a, a point about what's true or not. We don't know if at that time that's true. Maybe we do know. But what's important in your life is that you believed it was. And that really affected your decision making. And as we're on this American Discovery Tour, that's something I've been hearing a lot. Is that our beliefs about our culture, whether they're true or not, really, they really steer our choices, our decisions, and the way we experience the world around us. And so I I think that's so powerful. Why would you stay in an area if you thought people didn't want your service there? You're working so hard to, well, I mean, you're having a lot of fun too, at least the most fun of the medical students, (laughs) but you're working so hard to serve and help people. Definitely wanna make sure you're somewhere where they're gonna want your service.
1: Right. That's
0: powerful. Okay, so you go to UNC, travel, you're in residency, and you (laughs) you mentioned that there's actually a lot of things that could have been low points in residency curious if you want to walk me through like what was that like so
1: residency was brutal uh dehumanizing as i'd call it so you're working on most weeks 80 hours uh that's the 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 limit was 80 hours back then i don't know if there's a limit right now but that was the, the limit and as first year residents or interns which is a first year resident we had a 30 hour limit to our so our shift was 30 hours, one shift, and could be up to 30 hours. And so during ICU rotations, so you're working, I worked in the cardiac ICU and in the regular ICU. Those weeks, we will work, we will come on a Monday, say, 6 a.m. until next day at noon. So you work from 6 a.m. on Monday until noon on Tuesday. Then you get to go home at noon, but the next day you're not off. You come to work, you come to work maybe 7 to 3, then the next day you come seven to four. And then the next day, you come again at six until noon the following day. And then the following day, you're off. So you're off four times in four weeks. But then you work 80-hour weeks and you work these 30-hour shifts. And the combination of inexperience and fatigue was just too much to handle. I think that 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 almost, that nearly broke me. And I, there were several times in residency when I was like, I, I need to quit. I want to quit. I, this is not worth it uh, that I was going crazy. And, you know, luckily I had my mom uh, living with me at the time. And my ex-wife was supportive. My brother was supportive. Uh, and And I just kept going. But it was almost on a weekly basis you'd want to quit. Why do they do that? I have no clue. <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't think it's necessary to go through it. And you know, it, it's funny because it's not funny. It's actually kind of sad that I dissuaded a lot of people from pursuing a career in medicine while I was going through residency. You know, while I was going through residency, like my cousins, a couple of my cousins, they they were interested in going to medicine, and I'm like, please don't, just stay away from this. This is not the way that I would want. This is not something I would wish upon my worst enemy to have to go through it. But the thing is, by by then, ah. Uh, I owe $150,000 in student loans. I mean, if I don't go through with medicine, how am I going to pay my loans, right? So, I mean, basically, you're, uh, I mean, excuse my French, but you buy the balls. I mean, you really got to do it because there's really no way that you can afford to pay $150,000 in student loans and become a doctor and have nothing to show for it. So, if you, you have to go through oh. with it.
0: Because you take all, a lot of these loans to get through med school, right? Correct. Because yeah, if you're loans. not on a research fellowship, you're paying Correct. to get this degree. I can't understand that. You know, My PhD is a funded PhD program, and I had mentors from the very first year of my undergrad that taught me, this is how you go get funded positions. You do not take positions that aren't funded. They, they made it very clear to me, you do not go get degrees where you pay a bunch of money and then you're trapped. And they just ne- they made it a standard for me mm-hmm. that this is what what you have to do and will help you do it. And because of that, I experienced so much freedom in graduate school. There was no cost. Right. It wasn't like I'm stuck here so I could always be connected. If I worked 80 hours one week, it was because I couldn't stop because I was having so much fun. And that's that's heartbreaking because knowing you for a couple days, your heart's so pure. You're so dedicated to service and helping people. And then you're in this place where you, you're really doing the work and you can do it and you're being broken by it.
1: Right, yeah, that was pretty tough. Wow,
0: I think that's just really a powerful perspective to have. So you're there in residency, you do make it through.
1: Yeah, miraculously.
0: Wow, and you kind of had to because you, you were like, I gotta pay this off. Right. I can't
1: do it, you miraculously make it through but I did away with the twenty-four. Well, at least for neurology, I did away with the twenty-four-hour shifts. So when I became chief resident, I'm like, well, you know, if if I quit caring about my patients by hour twenty or so, I know most people stopped at probably thirteen or fourteen, you know, because at that point it's just them versus you, and when you're so fatigued, you, you really it's hard. I mean, it's impossible to care about anybody. Um. And so I said, you know, nobody should have to work 24-hour shifts even. I mean, again, we were, it was 30 when we started, but when I was uh, chief resident, last year resident, it was 24 hours. And I, I was able to do away with 24-hour shifts. I changed the schedule around so that nobody had to work 24 hours. And to my knowledge, even that was 2014, even now they still have that same rotation that I designed that, that avoided 24-hour shifts. Wow,
0: good. I'm glad to hear that. Look at you making a difference. Your student government work <laughs> came, came to play and, and you did it and I think that's really powerful because maybe with those kinds of changes you would encourage people to go to med school.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. now with the life that I live, but now of course it's too late because they went th- did different things, but now I say, well, you know, maybe all that pain was worth it because now I can see what's after that, you know? Just when you're in, in such long tunnel, it's hard to even get perspective on what awaits you on the other side. Wow. Yeah.
0: I resonate with that deeply. A parallel to that for me would be depression. I've gone through very serious major depression. You know, I've shared a lot of my story with you, but losing my parents, especially my mom, the tunnel can be so dark and so long, and you have no idea when it's going to end or how it would end or if it ends. And that tu- that I resonate with that deeply. It's amazing what happens to the brain when you're in that situation, right? It's like you're so locked in. All you can see is darkness and all you're looking for is light. It's, it's crazy. For you, there had to be $150,000 to pay <laughs> to keep you in the tunnel. I'm glad it did, because from what I've learned, you've done a lot with it, but that's wild. So walk me out of residency. Well, if you had to title residency, what would you title that chapter, your residency?
1: Bottomless pit bottomless
0: pit. (laughs) It's not, I recognize it's funny, but it's not funny. I've also noticed when people go through, when they have clear periods of pleasure, and this is for the audience as well, I'm making this insight. When When people have clear pleasure or very clear pain, so much easier for them to title their chapters. It's one hypothesis that I've realized when you have that clarity, it's just so much easier. It comes right away. And I'm really curious what happens when you work on titling the chapters that you haven't. Like, it's not clear. So, sorry, I just wanted to, to give that insight to the audience um, as it's happening. So, you go through residency and you walk out of that stage of your life. What would you say is the next defining moment after residency that kind of starts that next chapter leading into your, your you know, your doctor life?
1: Well, so, I wanted to, well, I got divorced. Through residency, through um, residency, right. So I got divorced, through residency, and then I wanted to be close to my daughter, but I, I want what I wanted to do was cognitive neurology. So I wanted to work with dementia, Alzheimer's, that kind of thing. That's my passion. Mm-hmm. But at the time, uh, Duke didn't have a program that I had my knowledge of that, or UNC, but. I figured, well, I'm at UNC already. The easiest thing would be to stay here. And stroke was a very strong program. Their stroke program was very strong. So I figured, well, you know, I can just stay, stick around for one more year, do stroke, and kind of see what happens. Uh, that way I could stay local. And so I did stroke. And the year that I did stroke, which was from, you know, the residency runs from July 1st to the next July 1st, it was 2014 through 2015 stroke became sexy because they came up with new treatment modalities for stroke patients and so that year it became sexy and after that everybody needed a stroke neurologist and so i went from going into an area where people would say like why are you doing stroke because like what are you going to do give patients an aspirin and tuck them in a room until they leave and then finally we had something to offer we had something that changed the way the patients did and outcomes and so it was great to be there at that moment. And it just kind of landed on my lap. You know, I wasn't seeking fame, fortune, or anything that goes with it, but it just kind of came to me. You know, I made a decision based on love, which was to stay close to my daughter, and that was a byproduct. Wow. So coming, like, when I think
0: about... No, let me restart it. So when I think about what you just said, that there was this huge shift in how you could offer new services for people with strokes because my grandfather part of what led to him passing away was a heat stroke and i don't know if that works differently but i didn't even know this so 2015 2016 there was an innovative treatment that changed what would happen can you explain that a little more that's fascinating so
1: prior to 2014 we only had a drano for blood vessels or a clot buster something that can break a clot that you give through an iv and that's how we treat it stroke and we still do we we still use that but for larger clots which are very hard to dissolve even with that blood thinner uh, we can go through the groin and put a catheter up to the heart i'm sorry up to the brain just like they do for heart catheterizations but instead we go to the brain and we actually pull it out or suction it or engage the clot with a mesh Uh, and uh, like stand and then pull it out quite like fish it out and that's a new thing that became the standard of care uh, after the uh, study came out in october of 2014 and then more studies came back the next stroke conference in 2015 and that completely revamped the way that we treat strokes and it became much more important to have a stroke program to have a the, the hospital that was capable of performing that. And so everything in stroke care has changed dramatically since. Wow,
0: that is intense to me to even think about. This is the first time I've really thought about what it'd be like when you have a stroke. But When you're having a stroke, you essentially have a blood clot, right? And it's in the brain. Is it always in the brain? Mm-hmm. And so you have a, a blood clot in the brain and it's disrupting your brain's ability to function, right? Correct. And so, as a neurologist, you help with diagnosing what's happened. Is that how that works? What's your role in stroke care?
1: My role in stroke care, and I actually do, like, for instance, I do telestroke, which I see patients who are in rural areas of Virginia or North Carolina, and I see them because they show up to an ER that doesn't have any neurologists because it's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, And then I see them online, and I... I can examine the patient and I, based on the story, based on the scans that we get, and based on how long it's been since they were completely normal, we can potentially treat them with either the clot poster or with the clot extraction, mechanical thrombectomy we call it. Uh, And so I get to basically see these patients on an urgent basis and diagnose them, determine, yes, this looks like a stroke, uh, B, is it safe or not to use the club buster? C, do they qualify for mechanical thrombectomy? And then I give my impression. And then whoever, the plumber, which is the person who actually does the, the thing, can go and do that. We can transfer the patient. If that hospital is not equipped with it, typically not, um, but then they get, they can get transferred to the closest facility that can offer that service. Or if they can get the club buster, we just do it through the IV. And then, that's how that's
0: fascinating i just want to touch on this because part of what i love about your story is that you built your life and as you built this life a product is, is you have this knowledge most people probably have no idea how this works and what i love about that while i'm listening to this and this is to show my audience while i'm listening to you tell me this the process of me thinking about how this stroke works i think a lot about that in our life stories when we're trying to change our life stories or we're trying to change the way we see the world, maybe change what people often call our mindset, you have blocks that are there. You have mental blocks that get in your way that keep you from seeing the world in a way that'll better serve you. And you have clotbusters, busters. Like maybe you have something that you can insert into the way you think. Some people take a drug and it radically changes the way that they think or the way they experience the world. And that's not always great because it changes other things they don't anticipate. And you also have extraction. Therapy often is extraction. Or what I do professionally is coaching. You go in and you walk people through a, really a discovery process and they start to find some of their own solutions. Really, sometimes it's preventative care. And that's actually my last question on that in the stroke world. Is there preventative care that people could take to pay attention, make sure these clots don't happen? or even get early detection or awareness of stuff like that. Right,
1: so a healthy lifestyle, so, so there's primary prevention and secondary prevention. Primary prevention, preventing something from happening that has never happened. And then there's not a whole lot of that other than a healthy lifestyle, you know, having good cholesterol profile and not, not having high blood pressure or, or addressing it if you have it. Uh, not smoking, you know, smoking is a risk factor. So trying to is risk factor avoidance But then there's secondary prevention, which means once you've had a stroke, how do you keep from having another one? Because once you have a stroke, that becomes your main risk factor. The fact that you've had a stroke, it's already the the strongest risk factor. And so in that case, aspirin and statin. Although these have not necessarily been shown to be good for primary prevention because um, more people will be harmed by long-standing use of these medications. But once you've had one, then you need them. That's
0: really powerful. I appreciate you enlightening us on, on that because our brain and our bodies, th- we need that for our life story. <laughs> we need that to navigate life. And that's mm-hmm. something I've noticed about you. you. You're so healthy in so many ways. You're so vibrant. At least that's what it feels like. And maybe there's more to that story, but there's some vibrancy about you. And that's what's inspired me over the last couple of days I've been with you. You have a vitality. I think a lot of people are looking for that. Which it sounds like residency almost broke it. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah. sounds like it almost broke it there. I still
1: did travel through residency you as d- much as I could. Uh, oh. Yeah, really? Yeah. Wow. So your commitment to travel—that was a non-negotiable for yeah. you. No, I I can't stop doing it. I'll I'll die traveling. But but even like for instance, the October of my first year of residency, I remember I went to Norway and Latvia, Lithuania. Uh, I mean, separate, I mean, but I. That's just one that I remember, but every time that I'm off, I keep doing it. Wow,
0: that is powerful that you have that. For me, fitness is a non-negotiable. Even on this tour, I go to the gym every day because for me, that's what's most important. For me, that's what makes me feel healthy, that's what makes me feel happy. For you, travel is like a cornerstone to that, what's most important to you. Absolutely incredible. Okay. So post-residency, you made travel a non-negotiable. You're doing what you were passionate about, even when you got this thing that's going to break you. So what about life now? How is life now, post-residency, and obviously there's been some time in between. But now after you've done that, what would you say life looks like in this current stage of your life?
1: Oh, no, it's great. These are the, the sweet moments. It's the Culmination of all that effort, all those sacrifices that were made through the earlier years now just bear fruit. And as I told you, the stroke became sexy. So there were lots of positions open. I interviewed in four places, had a fellowship, got offered four jobs. I basically picked and chose and made the best of everything and picked the perfect place. I moved to Charleston, South Carolina. I was director of the program uh, it was great. And then I moved to be closer to my daughter here to North Carolina. As you know, I work one week, I'm off two weeks. During my two weeks off, I travel. During my week on, I'm completely devoted to my patients and it's great work-life balance for me.
0: Wow, it's incredible. And yeah, that's wild for people to get a perspective. Your current job, you work one week and you explained it to us, right, that. That allows you to be fully present and dedicated to your patients while you're there. And then two weeks, you have off. And what's your goal in those two weeks off?
1: Well, so I've been doing, the last few years, I've been doing a lot of family uh, gathering, I guess. Uh, I've gone to Colombia several times, trying to organize my four, the four trunks of my family. So my, each grandparent and their ancestors and uh I look at, say, my grandfather's grandparents, and then I look at all their siblings and all of their descendants. And so it's given me thousands of new cousins. Uh, I've, I've talked to about 2,000, and I've met about 850 in person throughout the world, primarily in Colombia, but several in the United States, some in Europe, some as far as Dubai.
0: Do you think that that bit of loneliness that comes from American culture or from that change to American culture has motivated that at all? I think so.
1: I think that you appreciate what you don't have. And I think it moving away from my family, you know, in Colombia, and I, I think that has taught me the value of family more than I ever had it present in my life when I had it with me all the time.
0: Wow, you know, I just wanna, that actually hit me really deep because this week I saw my aunt who I haven't seen since 2016 and it's my mom's sister or my dad's sister sorry and when I first saw her my eyes just lit up I mean I was so excited to see her and I couldn't stop looking at her and I was mesmerized by everything she did every smile that she made every laugh that she had I was just completely enamored with my aunt and I was shocked and my whole world felt different It was like I was on a drug and it was a powerful feeling. And then when we got here and each morning we would come down and we'd have breakfast with you and your wife and we would have dinner together and we just sit at this little table. I mean, we should really show people we're sitting at a table. You have the means to have the nicest table in the world and you're eating at this nice little square, humble table with simple chairs. And it didn't matter at all because we were fully engaged, talking with each other, learning about each other. And I felt that. I felt how much you honored even that time to someone who's just walked into your life a couple days ago. I felt like family. Thank you for that.
1: Oh no, thank you guys for coming. It's been great having you here. I knew it was going to be great. You know, we shared the enthusiasm to learn about other people. Uh, And I think that's great. You know, there's... You want to look at this country, you're from this country. I mean, this is an amazing country. I mean, it's my home country. Uh, even though I'm not from here, but I feel like this is home. You know, this country gave me the opportunities that my own country didn't. Uh, and I love this country. And my, my exploration is I want to see the world, but I think that I applaud you because, you know, I could I could have chosen to explore the United States. I haven't even been to half the States. I think I've been to 27 or so but there's so much to see here and you're doing it. And you know, the fabric of this country is diversity. Uh, And I think that it's a great thing that you're going through this and I I really applaud your efforts and I'm really happy to see where this project goes.
0: I really appreciate that. That being said, one thing I like to close these interviews with asking you, everything that you thought about today and that you've been thinking about through your life, what's a life lesson or a core value that you try to live your life by right now?
1: Well, one of the things that I've been recently inspired by is the fact that a lot, the most important things in life are a given. The most important things in life are free. You wake up every morning, and you don't realize how fortunate you are. You can move, you can see, you know. I mean, just think about how much would you give If you lost your sight right now, how much would you pay to get it back? You'll give everything you have, but you already have it. And so we go looking for more. We go trying to build. We have everything. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, what, I mean, okay, you have a million. You have two million. You have five million. What are you going to do with it? You see, to, to me, money... It, I'm not gonna say it's not important because it is, but it's by no means in the top ten of the most important things in life. You know, I could quit my job right now, and I can, I can live, relatively okay. You know, because I don't really need much to live. I grew up in a very austere environment, and I learned to make the best out of what I had, and I can go back to that happily. I will, I will go back to move in my same house. When I go to Colombia, I stay at my house where I grew up. And I stay there, my mom lives there, and I mean, she's the most important thing. I mean, I can go and stay in any hotel in the city, and okay, on occasion we go and we pamper ourselves for one or two days. Uh, But I stay home because that's home. Uh, There's no place like home. There's no place like home. That's so beautiful. All right.